Welcome to the MacArthur Memorial Podcast. Located in Norfolk, Virginia, the MacArthur Memorial is a museum and research center dedicated to the life and legacy of General of the Army Douglas MacArthur. The memorial is also dedicated to preserving and presenting the story of the millions of men and women who served with General MacArthur. Each month, the staff of the memorial will use this podcast to explore topics relating to General MacArthur and his times. In American Caesar, a biography of General Douglas MacArthur, author William Manchester begins the volume by quoting noted British historian Arnold Toynbee. Commenting on Julius Caesar, Toynbee wrote, Caesar was not and is not lovable. He won his soldiers' devotion by the victories that his intellectual ability applied to warfare brought them. Yet though not lovable, Caesar was and is attractive, indeed fascinating. His political achievement required ability, in effect amounting to genius in several different fields, including administration and generalship, besides the minor arts of wire-pulling and propaganda. In all of these, Caesar was a supreme virtuoso. As Manchester goes on to demonstrate in his book, this perspective on Julius Caesar also applies to MacArthur's life and legacy. Volumes have been written about MacArthur's talents on the battlefield and his abilities as an administrator in times of peace. There has also been a great deal of focus on MacArthur's ego and his love of the limelight and press, but less is focused on his actual capabilities as a media genius. Like Caesar, MacArthur was a master communicator and propagandist. Most people tend to think of propaganda as a dirty word, something that implies manipulation and disinformation. While this can definitely be true, and while MacArthur certainly exaggerated or overlooked facts at times, a master propagandist can also be defined as an extraordinarily gifted and persuasive communicator. When most people think of General MacArthur, they think of his ability to communicate, his ability to know the value of a good photo op, his ability to spin stories to reporters, and his ability to make dramatic headlines. In many respects, his media savvy was an innate talent. In other more technical aspects, however, such as understanding the influence of the media, its ability to sway public opinion, and how to use it as a tool to promote an agenda, MacArthur actually had quite a bit of practical experience early on in his career. From 1916 to 1918, a young Douglas MacArthur served as the head of the War Department's new Bureau of Information. In this capacity, he served as press censor and primary liaison between the War Department and the media. As a result, he is today recognized as the Army's first public relations officer. This podcast will discuss this period of service, an important but often overlooked part of his early career. From the very beginning, MacArthur's road to becoming press censor was closely tied to the War Department's efforts to ensure that America's military was prepared for any type of involvement in a future war. In August of 1914, as war exploded across Europe, the term preparedness became a watchword for many on the U.S. Army's general staff. As U.S. military leaders followed the developments in Europe, it became obvious that the armed forces of the United States were woefully unprepared to fight a war. A campaign to remedy this deficiency quickly emerged. Those most worried about American security and capabilities called for taking a realistic approach to preparing for war, even while ultimately hoping to avoid war. 
This became the core focus of the preparedness argument, an argument that would play out in the United States over the next three years. Men like General Leonard Wood, MacArthur's mentor, and Secretary of War Lindley L. Garrison became champions of preparedness. They worked hard to gain political and public support for realistic military planning. To them, it was imperative that the United States military know how to expand the armed forces if necessary, how to procure supplies and munitions, as well as the other basics involved in creating, housing, transporting, training, feeding, and leading an army at war. Within days of the start of World War I in Europe, a young Captain Douglas MacArthur was drawn into this battle to win public and political support for American preparedness. On August 10, 1914, while on duty in Veracruz, Mexico, MacArthur received orders from the War Department to return to Washington, D.C. immediately. Upon his return, he was assigned to the Mobile Army Division, a part of the general staff tasked with planning for future mobilization and war. While disturbed by the war in Europe, the American public did not feel threatened by it. The war was an ocean away. It was a European problem. Advocates of preparedness, however, saw danger on the horizon and were not as ambivalent. But in 1914, the Lusitania had not been sunk, the Zimmerman telegram had not been sent, and Americans were relatively divided in their preference for the Allied or Central Powers. In this environment of anti-war isolationism and ambivalence, a young MacArthur would rise as a staunch and eloquent advocate of preparedness. Years prior to the outbreak of war, MacArthur had been instrumental in helping General Leonard Wood sell the idea of the first Plattsburgh officer training camp. The Plattsburgh camp was an experimental summer military camp for college-age men designed to create a pool of trained reserve officers. In the event of war or national crisis, a large proportion of these young men would then be qualified to serve as commissioned officers. In Washington, D.C. in 1914, while on the general staff, MacArthur remained a champion of the Plattsburgh idea, pointing out that such programs would cheaply create an army reserve of officers that could be called upon only if necessary, without ballooning the size of the regular army and making people nervous about having such a huge standing army. At the time, in many democracies around the world, large standing armies were perceived as a threat to domestic liberty and also as a potential tool for aggressive expansion and imperialism. It was believed that having more than 10% of a population in the armed forces would change the nature of a republic and turn it into a society dominated by military interests. Those worried about having too large of a military pointed to Germany, a state very much dominated by Prussian military culture. A master of public relations, General Wood commented publicly, The United States can be organized and prepared for war, and yet be just and tolerant. She can be prepared for defense and still be free from the spirit of aggression. Ever an admirer of General Wood, MacArthur learned much from Wood's handling of this issue. Words mattered, and having a wide base of support mattered as well. In the end, the camps garnered a great deal of public support, and MacArthur and General Wood continued to play a role in emphasizing that the camps were not designed to create a militaristic society, but simply a way to introduce potential citizen soldiers to the art of soldiering and leadership. This message fell on fertile ground because it was packaged properly for its targeted audience. 
It stressed that preparedness could be anti-war and anti-imperialism because the character of a nation influenced the development and culture of its military. The public was afraid of militarism and imperialism. But as men like General Wood pointed out, America was by nature non-aggressive and non-imperial. Her military would reflect this. As a result, the champions of preparedness were able to calm these public fears and gather support. With the sinking of the Lusitania in May of 1915, public opinion began shifting even more in favor of preparedness, but the battle was far from over. Public opinion had spiked violently in favor of holding Germany responsible for the Lusitania, but President Wilson doggedly kept the nation out of war and remained tepid in his support for preparedness. Over the next year, as the battle for preparedness continued, MacArthur would be singled out for his ability to charm and persuade, whether in terms of official policy or in terms of image and diplomacy. Increasingly, one of MacArthur's assignments was to serve as host and guide for visiting military dignitaries or members of Congress. According to his biographer, D. Clayton James, MacArthur's poise and personality made him unusually well-suited for this type of assignment and his superior officers recognized that he had an innate ability to charm and influence others. Aristocratic in all the right ways, convivial and charismatic, MacArthur was a natural. He was such an effective host that when Admiral Jua of Japan announced a visit to Washington, D.C., the Department of the Navy asked to borrow MacArthur so that he could escort the Admiral around for the duration of his visit. MacArthur's commanding officer consented to this request, and in MacArthur's 1916 efficiency report, found him well-fitted for positions requiring diplomacy and high-grade intelligence. It would not be long before he would be singled out yet again to be the official public face of the War Department. Having won a second term on a platform of avoiding war, President Wilson continued to refuse to throw the full weight of his office behind anything more than a very limited approach to preparedness. In February 1916, Secretary of War Lindley L. Garrison and Assistant Secretary Breckinridge resigned from their posts to protest what they deemed the President's refusal to adopt a realistic approach to preparedness. Garrison and Breckinridge were not war hawks, but saw danger and the potential for scandal if the United States government didn't seriously prepare for any military contingency. Wilson accepted their resignations, and in the place of Garrison, he appointed Newton D. Baker. Baker was the former mayor of Chicago, and identified by Wilson's enemies as a pacifist, hardly the kind of man many wanted as Secretary of War when the battle for preparedness had yet to be won. Baker soon confounded his critics. Within a month, he demonstrated that he was also an advocate of preparedness, and he began the delicate task of convincing President Wilson of the necessity of preparedness. With Wilson slowly warming to the idea, it then became time to get the American people on board. Douglas MacArthur, by that time an Army major, soon became indispensable to Secretary Baker. The Secretary found in MacArthur a man with a very nimble mind someone who could answer his questions on military topics, but also present them creatively and to a non-military audience. On June 30, 1916, MacArthur was appointed Baker's military aide and placed in charge of the practically non-existent Bureau of Information of the War Department, with the title of Press Censor. This new job placed him in direct contact with the media, making him a spokesperson and salesman for the Secretary of War and the Army. 
MacArthur's primary duty was to write press releases and grant interviews to the press, primarily on the official views of the War Department on military legislation before Congress. Charming and seemingly guileless, he quickly established a very warm relationship with members of the press. MacArthur also spent a great deal of time using back channels to present unofficial views and to test the waters to see if the War Department had media support on certain initiatives. This new job had him working late into the night, and he was considered so indispensable that the Adjutant General's office was informed that Major MacArthur's annual fitness test in horseback riding would have to be postponed indefinitely. The thought of him taking three days off to report for this fitness test, required of every Army officer at the time, was unthinkable. The War Department could not spare its main link to the media and the American people. MacArthur, already firmly convinced of the merits of preparedness, and Secretary Baker, a new convert, knew that the support of the American people would be vital if they were to achieve the goals of preparedness. Much of this responsibility was left to MacArthur. Recognizing the importance and influence of the press, he continued to develop warm relationships with the major newspaper men of the day. His door was always open to them, and they were welcome to stop by for informal chats any time. He was straightforward with them, but even more importantly, he was incredibly eloquent in his presentation of preparedness. Used to being stonewalled or being forced to dig for stories through pages and pages of dense military reports, the newspaper men greatly profited from MacArthur's chats, whether they were informal or on the record, and they were very grateful to the young officer that was dealing with them so courteously. On April 4, 1917, 29 of the most distinguished writers in Washington, D.C. wrote a letter to Secretary Baker, commending Major MacArthur. In the letter, the men wrote, We of the Fourth Estate wish to address to you our appreciation of the way Major Douglas MacArthur has dealt with us. We wish to say our thanks to him for the unfailing kindness, patience, and wise counsel we have received from him. No man can ever know to what extent the cordial relations the Major has maintained with the press may have influenced national thought on military matters. If wise decisions are reached eventually as to the military policy of our country, we cannot help but feel that the Major has helped, through us, to shape the public mind. Two days after this letter was written, the United States declared war on Germany. With such friendly newspapermen waiting for their daily ration of copy and advice, MacArthur was a very busy man. There was the war, the national draft, and the idea of using the National Guard to sell to the American people. With a captivated audience of pressmen, and with MacArthur's charm and eloquence, as the newspapermen had earlier predicted, MacArthur influenced national thought on military matters by shaping public opinion. As Fraser Hunt, one of MacArthur's biographers, points out, MacArthur did not make national policy, but he did explain it to the country. MacArthur was directly responsible for selling the Selective Service Act to the American people via the press. While the preparedness argument was not initially successful, it was cumulative and gained in strength year after year as the war came closer to America. MacArthur is credited with conditioning the American people to the extent that they were able to accept something which had been impossible to imagine years earlier. Whether it was the idea of the draft, or the Selective Service Act in peacetime, or merely boosting military size and supplies. With America now in the war, MacArthur soon left his staff assignment in Washington. 
Anxious to participate in the fighting in France, he was promoted to colonel and assigned as chief of staff of the 42nd Rainbow Division. Over the next year, Secretary of War Newton Baker probably wished MacArthur was still in D.C. instead of fighting in France. Without MacArthur's diplomatic touch, the press loudly complained about the War Department's actions and their access to information. The press had expected difficulties because of the war and the need for secrecy, but even when MacArthur kept information from them, he had fed their imaginations and pens. His successors would not be as creative. MacArthur's official career as an information officer or press censor was over, but the skills and relationships he built during this time would continue to aid him in his career and color his relations with the press. He would use his command of the English language and his incredible knowledge of what made good print, and he would also use his own personal charm to flatter and influence newspaper men. He had also learned the power of words and of one-liners, and that to influence a population required a cumulative effort and a message that resonated, such as his famous I Shall Return pledge in World War II. Thank you for listening. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please feel free to contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.